We are in the Easter season and asking the question, how do we experience eternity now rather than thinking of eternity as something far off in the distant future? And we just read words from a story that took place about 2,000 years ago in the city of Jerusalem. It was during the Passover week that Jesus and 12 of his disciples were sitting in a room in Jerusalem over a meal. And there are two people in particular we want to pay attention to in this story. The first, of course, is Jesus, who does most of the speaking. And the second is the disciple John, who is there and will eventually tell us the story that we just read. Now, in this story, Jesus says to his disciples, just mere hours before his death, he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You have faith in God. Have faith in me as well. In God's house, there are. And then we come across two Greek words that John would later write. The first Greek word is poli. Let me hear you say poli this morning. Poli. And the second is moni. Let me hear you say moni. moni. In God's house, there are poli moni, Jesus said. And otherwise, how could I have told you that I was going to prepare a place for you? Then Jesus told Thomas a few verses later, I myself am the hodos. I am Alethia, and I am Zoe. No one comes to Abba God but through me. Now, Jesus said these words, and if it was not for John, we probably would have never heard these words. But John, who was sitting at this table, heard these words and remembered them for decades. So much so that about 60 years after Jesus said these words, after Jesus has died and then resurrected from the grave, John wrote his story in Greek. Now, this was an interesting choice. We talked about it last week, but it's important for us to remember that when Jesus spoke these words, he was speaking Aramaic. John intentionally chose to write the gospel in Greek, even though Jesus didn't say Greek words, because John wanted this message of Jesus to reach the most amount of people possible. So he records these words of Jesus in Greek. This is the earliest telling of Jesus that we have from John, sometime around the year 90. And then about 290 years later, people are making copies of John's gospel as fast as they can. And sometime around the year 383 CE, this gospel was in circulation around churches. Only the churches could have it. Most people couldn't read it. They could just listen to it. But here in John's gospel in 383 were these five Greek words we pointed out just a moment ago. Now, there was a man in 383 named Jerome who was commissioned by the church to translate the Greek text of John into the Latin language of the church. And so he took the first word and translated it to multe, mancio, second word, third word, via, fourth, veritas, and the fifth as vita, and put them into a Latin translation that we call today the Vulgate. Now, the Vulgate was the official Bible of the Western church for over a thousand years. And most people, when you went to church, you would hear Latin and people would read Latin, but most people couldn't understand it because Latin started to die out as a well-known language. So for that reason, people began translating the Bible into different languages. Around the year, or exactly on the year, 1526, a man named William Tyndale said he was going to translate the Bible from Latin into English. And before we get to William Tyndale's translation, we have to remember what's going on here. He wants to translate the Latin translation, which is from the Greek translation, which is from the Aramaic origin, right? So we have translations of translations of translations, and William Tyndale wants to translate it for the first time 
into the English language. And so he comes across these Latin words, multe mansio, and he translates multe as many and mansio as mansions. Now, what's interesting about this is he did all of this not in modern English, but in Middle English. So it read this, in my father's house with two S's are many mansions. If it were not so, I would, check out how they wrote would back then, have told you. Now it's important to understand there's a difference between Middle English and Modern English. And as a commentator from New English Translation said, the English translation mansions can be traced back to Tyndale, but in Middle English the word simply meant dwelling place. So in other words, we hear mansions today, and when William Tyndale translated Mancio into mansions back then, it was like, oh, it's just a place where you live. Whereas when we hear mansions today, we think something quite different, don't we? Now, William Tyndale also translated this passage, 14.6, where Jesus says, I am the via, the veritas, and the vita. He translated it into, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, most with extra ease on them, right? Now, this was all Middle English, and if you try to read Middle English, you will stumble across a lot of words that you're not familiar with. And not only that, but Middle English was on its way out as William Tyndale was translating this which led to a new person coming forward 100 years later, a man named King James, who as a king looked at 47 people and said, you guys have a new job. Your job is to translate the Bible into modern English. I'm tired of this middle English. So he commissioned 47 people to translate the Bible into modern English. Now, they didn't have access to the Greek texts, so they went to Tyndale's Bible and they went to the Vulgate and these 47 translators translated off of translations of translations. This is why when people ask, why is the King James Version one of the worst translations we have today? The answer is, oh, because it's translations of translations of translations. So we go back to this, and th these 47 translators came to Tyndale's translation. They said, in my father's house are many mansions. And they chose to keep those words, many mansions, even though it meant something different in modern English. All of a sudden, in God's, in the Father's house, there are these giant monstrosities of homes that God is apparently preparing for all of us. And a lot of people like to think of them as covered in gold, right? Just a whole city of mansions. Not only that, but the, the people who were translating for the King James Version looked at this verse. They just changed it slightly to Jesus said unto, saith unto them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And you can see from just these two verses, a whole theology starts to unfold from 1611, right? Basically, if this is you, someone who is religious would come to you and say like, hey, there's mansions in the sky. Would you like a mansion? And of course, being us, we say, of course we'd like a mansion in the sky. Show me the way to the mansion. And the religious folks would say, oh, well, you got to go through the father to get to the mansion. And once you go from the Father to the mansion, you can have a mansion. But you can't just go to the Father directly. You have to go to Jesus first to get to the Father to get to the mansion. And if you don't take this route specifically, no mansion for you. <laughs> now, this was the theology that existed for about 350 years based on a translation of a translation. And it went all the way to the year 1955 in Portland, Oregon, back when it was still weird, not like now, right? <laughs> and it's here in Portland that a man named Howard Long, a random engineer 
who just loved to share his faith with people, came across a business associate that was not a Christian. And he said, meet me at the Multnomah Hotel in Portland, and I want to sit down and I want to do a Bible study with you. So Howard Long met his business associate there, and he pulled out his Bible, which was a King James Version. And he sat down to read the Bible to his friend as he hoped to bring his friend to the faith. Well, he started saying words like cometh, and his friend started laughing. He got like red in the face, and Howard Long was embarrassed. So embarrassed, in fact, he went back to his pastor and he said, we need a new translation. We're getting laughed out of the building. And he and his pastor started a movement that eventually culminated in 1978, the New International Version being published. Now, what's different about the New International Version is they said, hey, we're not going to go to the Latin. We're not going to allow the King James Version to influence how we translate things. Instead, they went back to the Greek text, several of which had been discovered just a few decades before it was published. And they said, let's go back to the original and try to get it as accurate as possible. And so they came across these Greek words in John 14, 2, poli, or poli monai, and they translated poli as many, and they translated monai as rooms. In my father's house are many rooms. They then went back to the Greek for 14.6, and they translated, um, they translated these words into, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And it changed the way that we understood the Bible pretty significantly because the NIV was widely published and quickly adopted. However, five years after it was published, my life changed forever because I was born. And I grew up in this country, not too far from Portland, Oregon, and the Multnomah Hotel. And I can remember around the age of 10, somebody saying to me, hey, Craig, there's some mansions in the sky. Do you want a mansion? And I, of course, said, yes, I want a mansion in the sky. Please show me the way. And these people who I viewed as spiritual mentors said, well, you have to go to the Father first to get to the mansions. But you can't just go to the Father. You have to go through Jesus to get to the Father, to get to the mansions. There's no other way. This is the only way to the mansions. So if you want to have a mansion, Craig, 10-year-old Craig, make sure you stay with Jesus because the road is narrow and you got to stay close to it. Otherwise, you'll lose your mansion in the sky. Well, I did not want to lose my mansion back then. I was 10 years old. I had a vision of it having like a go-kart track around it and all my friends were coming over. So I was not going to lose it. But let's talk about what this theology is at its basic core, shall we? In this heaven, there is a small select group of people who get to live in mansions. This is not progress. This is not a step forward of something better, right? Instead, we look at this story and we realize that there are two major biblical problems that occurred that we need to address with this theology. The first one is, here in 1978, we knew that the word was monai, and that translates much better as rooms or dwelling places than mansions. In other words, since 1978, it has been common biblical knowledge that John records Jesus as saying rooms or dwelling places instead of mansions. This whole talk of mansions in the sky should stop. Amen. This whole talk of like, oh, you go to heaven and get a mansion, 
That's from a translation of a translation of a translation. We don't actually get mansions. We get rooms. Now, let's say that we're going to assume the best about my spiritual mentors who gave me that theology, right? After all, the information didn't spread as fast back in 1983, 1993, right? There was no internet. And they probably believed that they had the best translation available to them when they read mansions. To that, I would say, totally understand. I actually don't have a problem if we were all to say, like, oh, I think there will be mansions in heaven. I don't have a problem if people are like, I want to go to heaven and be, have shelter and have a house and have enough room to have my family and friends over. There's nothing wrong with that. The problem is not the mansions. For me, the problem is emphasizing mansions more than the word many. I think if they would have come along and said like, oh, it says many mansions, I can tell you mansions was way overemphasized compared to the word many. And yet they're right next to each other. Why is it that we didn't emphasize many more than mansions? Because after all, imagine me as a 10-year-old and someone's coming to me and saying like, Craig, heaven is generous. Heaven is wide open. God has a love for all of humanity and God wants everyone to be there. Amen. There is so much room in heaven. Never get trapped in the idea that only a few people will end up with mansions because God makes many mansions in God's house. Amen. Now, if you've been paying attention closely, you'd say, hold on a second. It's hard to emphasize many when Jesus says just a few verses later, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the question I want to ask you this morning is this. Is it possible to emphasize many when Jesus says no one comes to the Father except through me? And to be abundantly clear, let me answer this question. Absolutely! It is 100% possible. And to explain how I know it's 100% possible, I want to tell you a little bit about how I learned it was possible. Specifically, I went and learned from a, a Catholic priest named Richard Rohr who lives in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He came to town not too long ago, and I totally fangirled on him. I took a picture with him, and at this conference, he taught me a few things that were really valuable and changed the way I understood church history, Christianity, who I was, who God was, everything changed in that moment. Now, at this point, if you have read a Richard Rohr book, you will at some point realize, oh, Craig gets all his ideas from this guy, to which I would say, I know, bring it in, it's okay. And you may say to yourself, why is it that I come to church and hear Craig speak when I could just read Richard Rohr books, to which I would say, you're asking the question I ask myself every day. And the only answer I can give you is, while Richard Rohr talks about the eternal and the God in ways that people have never heard before, he doesn't do it with fast and furious metaphors. <laughs> and I've got the corner market on that one, so that's why you should give me, give me, a, few, give me, give me a few minutes, you know? Anyways, during this, during this conference, he said something that completely blew my mind. He said, guys, Christ is not Jesus' last name. In 2015, I was like, what? <laughs> and he said, have you ever noticed in Western art, Jesus is always holding up two fingers like this. And in Western Christian art, he's holding up these two fingers, not because Jesus walked around like this the whole time, but to remind us that he has a dual nature to his existence. Son of God, 
Son of Man. And you have to separate these so that you can put them together in Jesus. After all, Jesus translates from Greek into Joshua. And Christ translates into English as the anointed one. Jesus is the human element of this person, and Christ is the divine element of this person. Jesus is ephemeral, while Christ is eternal. Jesus is a local understanding of God, while Christ is an omnipresent understanding of God. To illustrate this, let's put up a map. And I know that you are all smart, and I know that you all paid attention to all the things that have been said in the world before. And if I asked you, where did Jesus live? You would all come up to this map and point right here. You'd be like, Jesus lived here. And if I asked you, when did Jesus live there? Most of you would get it by saying, uh, sometime around the year zero. Correct. This is where Jesus lived. He didn't go anywhere outside that star, right? Jesus lived, breathed, died, and then resurrected all from that star. Now, if I were to ask you, can you point to where the Christ is? You would say, oh, I get it. I need a real big star to cover the entire globe. And if I were to ask you, when was the Christ? You would say, uh, sometime around the year infinity, right? And if we go back to like a random year, like 2900 BCE, and I ask you, where is the Christ? Where is God moving in this world at this time? While some would point here, we believe in an omnipresent God, which means that God was just as present here among the indigenous folks who live in what is now Redlands, California. But it's not just two spots, right? It's all over the place. There's not a spot where God is more present than not. This is the omnipresence of God. Now, let's be very clear. No one here used the name Christ to describe this, right? That's a Christian term that comes later. And yet, everyone experienced the same thing that we name Christ. Everyone experienced Christ in their own context, gave it its own names, gave it its own experiences, developed its own rituals. They all experienced it because we believe that God is present everywhere. Now, if this is a little bit hard to grasp, let's talk about it in a way that I can understand with the Fast and the Furious movies, right? <laughs> there are nine of these epic films, the best parts of cinema that the world has to offer. And what are these movies about? They're movies that are set in the world of illegal street, race, street racing, right? Now, did illegal street racing start when the first Fast and the Furious movie came out? No. There is a world of illegal street racing that is much bigger than just these nine stories, right? There is a reality, a culture, a history. There is a lot of people who have participated in illegal street racing who have never seen these movies. And yet they experience it and they have different names for things, right? In this metaphor, Jesus is the Fast and Furious movies, which has never been mentioned in human history before ever, right? <laughs> The Christ is the entirety of illegal street racing. And it's like if somebody said, oh, no, 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 only street racing has happened these nine times. That's what Jesus, that's like taking Jesus and saying, oh, there's no Christ element to him, right? Instead, there are stories beyond these stories. There are people who have participated in street racing who have never seen these movies. There are people who have seen these movies who have never been to a street race, like this guy. I'm all bark and no bite. I have never been to a street race, and yet I love these movies. 
Here in Jesus, we have the dual nature of Christ, Jesus and Christ. And it's here that we have to pay attention to how different these are, particularly in the Gospels. Because Richard Rohr teaches that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, known as the Synoptic Gospels, when Jesus acts and says things and moves, he is saying them as Jesus. But when he speaks in John, he is speaking as the eternal Christ. This is a massive difference. And it's important to note because when Jesus talks, he speaks a lot more about eternal things in John's Gospels, and he talks a lot more about human things that are right in front of us in these three Gospels. So when we assume that Jesus is speaking as the Christ, as this, this presence, this entity, this experience that has been available to all humans throughout history, we realize that when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, it means something quite different. Because I am the way is translated from I am the hodos. And as Dr. Parker says from Mercer University, hodos is not really translated well as way. A much better translation of hodos is journey. And so Jesus is saying, I am the journey. I am the truth. I am the life. And no one comes to God except through me except through, no one comes to God except through the journey, except through faith, and except through life, through truth. When you experience those things, that is me way back then, because Jesus is speaking as the Christ. Amen. Jesus Christ is the journey. The Christ is the truth. And the Christ is the life that all of us have lived in our own ways. Now, at this point, you may feel like I am stretching the text very thin. You may say, Craig, I understand that you have spoken to this guy from the desert, but I want to know where you can find this within the Bible. To which I would remind you that this is in John's Gospel. And John wrote this story 60 years after all this happened. In other words, when he got down, sat down to write it, it's not like things were happening and he was like, oh, I wonder how that fits. He was telling a cohesive narrative. And he starts his narrative not by saying Jesus was born. He says, in the beginning, there was the Word. The Word was in God's presence, and the Word was God. Well, when he capitalizes word like this, I think it's okay for us to substitute the word Christ because it's just a different name for the same thing. So he starts with this epic cosmic significance of the Christ's birth. And he says, in the beginning, there was, in the beginning, there was the Christ. The Christ was in God's presence, and the Christ was God. The Christ was present to God from the beginning. This isn't Jesus we're talking about. This is the Christ. Though the, through the Christ, all things came into being. Not some things, not half the things, all the things. All the people. All the religions, all the human experiences, all things came into being. And apart from the Christ, nothing came into being that has, that has come into being. In the Christ was life, and that life was humanity's light. The Christ was coming into the world, was in the world. This is before Jesus has even been introduced in the story. Christ is already in the world, he says. And through the world was made through the Christ. The world did not recognize it. Though the Christ came into its own realm, the Christ's own people did not accept it. Yet any who did accept the Christ, who believed in that name, were empowered to become children of God, all before Jesus was born. Amen. Children born not of natural descent, nobody was just born into it, 
nor urge of flesh, nor human will, but born of God. And the Christ became flesh and stayed for a little while among us. And when we saw the Christ's glory, the favor and position a parent gives as only child filled with grace and filled with truth. He starts by saying, this is who I'm going to tell you about. The being, the presence, the entity, the embodiment of all that has been available to every human before I have lived. And what I think is so important about this story is if you just read it as Jesus, a human speaking, it starts to get really exclusionary real quick, doesn't it? And there's a real valuable lesson here as we look at what this means. Jesus without Christ will lead you into a very narrow and more exclusive understanding of God. But Jesus Christ will always lead you into a wider and more inclusive understanding of God. Because there's no one that can threaten your religion anymore, right? There's no one that can threaten your understanding of God because everyone all of a sudden becomes your teacher. Here at Paradox, two years ago, we started ending our prayers all the exact same way. If you've been here a couple times, it probably just rolls off your tongue. In the human name of Jesus and the eternal name of Christ, amen. Why do we say this after every prayer? It's to remind us that God is present in our religion, in our lives, in our practice, in our day-to-day business, right? But also to remind us that there is an eternal Christ that is available beyond what we have experienced, beyond our religion, beyond what we have been told before. There is something transcendent and yet intimate about this name, Jesus Christ, and we try to separate them out to remind ourselves that there is something bigger than what we have just experienced for our own. Our mission here at Paradox is we exist to see and embrace Jesus Christ and all. My hope is that you have learned from this church how to see the Christ in the ordinary days of your lives. That you have said, Jesus, is all, Jesus Christ is all around us in every place I go, and it has made me a more inclusive, a kinder, a more loving person because everyone is a child of God who has experienced the Christ on some level. My friends, may you choose many over mansions. May you be inspired by the expansive, inclusive, and universal nature of God. May you experience the Christ in your journey, in your truth, and in your life. May you live in a way that anticipates experiencing the Christ in the most ordinary occurrences of your life. And may you see and embrace Jesus Christ in all. Amen. Amen.